from RTE Radio. I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. I don't know if I've ever mentioned to you I met Billy Joel. My kids go, did you meet Billy Joel, Dad? Yeah, it's the only thing I ever did. You see, I'm a bit confused about this because I know I only have one liver. Yeah. So how do I give that one liver to somebody else? How does it work? And nobody will like me for this, Ray, because I know at the end of a long day, you want a really hot shower, but the hot shower will actually dry the skin out further. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, when Shay met Billy. Did you know that it's Liver Health Awareness Month? And how to help your skin cope with winter? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that might never have met Billy, might only have one liver, but whose skin is positively peach-like. Let's start with Shea Byrne's monologue from the nine o'clock show this morning and his thoughts on Joanna Lumley and sneaky celeb pics. You may not have Netflix. This is the thing as well. We talk about Netflix, we talk about premier uh, prime time, we talk about the, some people don't have Netflix. But if you do have Netflix, you may have been watching uh, the, the new drama um, with uh, Joanna Lumley, amongst other people as well. Um, and uh, she has been on the, the uh, talking about CCTV and people taking pictures of her because the premise for Fool Me Once, Harlan Corbin's best-selling book and now made into a Netflix series, is that there's a pivotal moment where there's a nanny cam ends up capturing footage that changes everyone's lives. But Dame Joanna Lumley, who's very, very nice. I happened to meet her once in London. I was introduced to her for at least three seconds and she was very, very nice. Um, she, By the way, she said her beauty secret is astral cream. It's not amazing. Just plain old cream on the face. Anyway, that's a whole different uh, story. But she says that uh, she feels like uh, people taking photographs of her secretly upsets her. I never mind doing photographs of people. Mm. What I don't like is when they steal them. They don't ask you. You can just see them quietly at a dinner table going like that across the restaurant. And I walk over and say, should we do a proper picture for you? (laughs) And they get a bit flustered and go, oh, I didn't want to disturb you. And you go, no, but that's creepy. So she goes over. She goes, yeah, are you saying you could take Well, I'm actually not. I'm taking a photograph of my wife. But if you'd like to be in a picture with us, you're very, you're very welcome. Have you ever done one of those little secret pictures? Have you ever asked your wife to move her chair or your husband or partner, friend or child? Move your chair just over to the right because there's a celebrity over the back. I want to take a picture of you pretending, but actually taking a picture of the celebrity and then we'll zoom in and clip you out of it, which is always a nice thing. But anyway, that's Joanna Lumley. And that's... Uh, uh, Fool Me Once, which is on Netflix at the moment, eventually should make it to mainstream TV somewhere along the way. But if you get a chance to see it, it is, in fairness, it is very good. Haven't seen it, but honestly, I expect the worst. Do you have a Cliff Richard calendar at home? That's a bit of a personal question, isn't it? Do you have a Daniel O'Donnell calendar at home? Do you have a fireman calendar? Do you have... Well, now they have a seagull calendar. Why is there a seagull calendar? You might think, seagulls, what? Seagulls, the bane of many people's lives. Well, Dublin seagulls now have their very... Now their very own calendar aimed at highlighting the problem of bin bags being ripped open across the city. Well, this is a real problem, not just uh, anywhere along the coast you'll have this problem. Uh, A residents association in Dublin too has opted to publish the gullible calendar, a humorous take on the growing nuisance caused by a flock of seabirds gathering uh, and scattering bags of rubbish. It features photos taken by members of the South Georgian Corps Residents Association. That's the poshest... Residents Association I have ever heard of. The South Georgian Corps Residents Association, also the SGCRA, if you want the acronym. Herring gulls ripping open bin bags and coming into conflict with humans. 
The group's chairperson, Kevin Byrne, said this makes our capital city dirty, visually un- unappealing, impacts tourism and Ireland's image. No resident wants to be stepping in a, a pile of waste. Well, they, now they have the calendar. And uh, they started out with a small print, room of, uh, print run of the calendar. And do you know how many they've sold? 50. So they're doing well. They've sold 50 of them so far and hopes to sell what's left at the uh, upcoming events that they, they have. We sold them at sales evenings for members before Christmas and gone around the local shops in the new year. They're 15 euro. They're 15 euro. There we go. According to Birdwatch Ireland, uh, Niall Hatch, best name for somebody from from Birdwatch Ireland. In the last two decades, many seagulls have moved away from their coastal haunts and can be now found in cities, parks, farmland, lakes, reservoirs, coastal harbours and uh, islands. And if you're wondering what kind of gulls are mostly found in Ireland, I'm sure you were. I'm sure it was the first thing on your mind you went when you heard me say this. What kind of gulls do we have? We have herring gulls. Herring gulls, which are very, 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 very popular. I have a copy of the uh, the calendar here and it looks it looks amazing. It looks fabulous. So there we go. I think I'll stick with my wee Daniel calendar, Shay. Thanks very much. Meanwhile, in Kilkenny. Wildlife stories. I feel like I'm with Derek Mooney on a Monday night. Uh, have you lost a snake? Have you lost a snake who's into hurling? Have you lost a snake in Kilkenny? Well, there was a runaway snake found near Nolan Park. <laughs> He's on his way to training, I think. He's gone on the run and escaped from the owner in Kilkenny. Well, he was found during the very cold weather and was dropped off at the National Reptile Zoo, which is based in Kilkenny City. And the search is now underway to locate the snake's owner and reunite them with their lost pet. He was found at Nolan Park, near the Hurling Stadium in Kilkenny City. We got a call to say there'd be a snake found, says James Hennessy uh, from the zoo. And uh, we checked the uh, for a few photographs to make sure uh, it wasn't venomous. And then, but the guy just turned up at the door with the reptile thirty minutes later with the snake in a bag, <laughs> with his trailing gear. <laughs> so that's. <laughs> So if somebody actually saw the snake and went, I better bring that somewhere. I picked it up. Would you pick up a snake? Have you ever picked up a snake? No, I wouldn't pick up a snake. It's a corn snake, which is a North American breed and quite a common pet. It's striped and it's under three feet long. Three feet's huge. It's not a rare snake. They're bred in lots of different patterns for the pet trade, but it's about two years old. Um, It was obviously living in Kilkenny City because snakes will only travel about a half a kilometre to a kilometre. So it's probably a local snake. So I had a Kilkenny accent. That's the other thing. I had a Kilkenny accent. So there you are. So if you lost a corn snake and you live anywhere in Kilkenny, you're within a, me- a, a kilometre from Nolan Park and you have a snake that's into hurling, then uh, you need to get in contact uh, with them and they'll be able to able to reunite you with the uh, National Reptile Zoo based in Kilkenny City. They'll be able to reunite you with your snake. Yeah, but how does he hold his command? I think we should be told. Wait, this just in. Shea Byrne once met Billy Joel. I don't know if I've ever mentioned to you I met Billy Joel. My kids go, did you meet Billy Joel, Dad? Yeah, it's the only thing I ever did. The only thing. <laughs> well, Billy Joel has a new song out. So have a listen to this and tell us who you think is playing this or what this might be. Do you think that's a a seventeen-year-old uh, practicing or eleven-year-old practicing for grade four piano? That's is that kind of yeah. Play the chords, uh, middle C. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. There, there we go. Uh, she's always a woman to me. It's got that vibe about it, doesn't it? No, that's actually Billy. <laughs> that's Billy Joel teasing his new single. 
You're like, has he? Ah, Billy, come on now. Come on, you need it. Yeah, he's announced the forthcoming release of his first single in decades, Turn the Lights Back On, the Grammy Award winning musician, who's 74. He looks well for 74. Will release the song on Thursday, February 1st to all major streaming platforms, as well as a limited edition seven inch vinyl. Um, it was written by Billy Joel, Arthur Bacon, and Wayne Hector, and would be accompanied by a lyric video shared to the Piano Man Stars official YouTube uh, channel. That's essentially a video that has the lyrics on the screen. A lyric video. Sounds a lot more fancy than it actually is. In a press release from his label, the song contains hallmarks of his signature sound. Yeah, definitely does. And some of the lyrics, here we go. Did I wait too long to turn the lights back on? <laughs> but you saved a few quid, very energy conscious in his mansion out in Long Island. There he goes, he is, yeah. He's one of the biggest selling artists of all time, but hasn't released anything new music since 2007 when he shared the original song, All My Life. There you go, yeah. His last album was 1993's River of Dreams and it marked his 30th anniversary last year. And I have to say, fair play, we love Billy Joel. He was, uh, he's coming to the end of his residency in Madison Square Garden, which he plays obscure tracks for his fans, keeps the front row empty for real fans so corporate people can't buy them and moves them from the back of the theatre. And he was here in the Aviva just not so long ago and he played a cracking gig as well. And, and <laughs> did you know I met him? Yeah, I met him. He's a very, very nice man. We'll just have to take Shay's word for that because he's met him. Did he mention that? Yeah, let's slip out low-key style from the nine o'clock show monologue here before it's too late. It's been billed as the biggest change in consumer behaviour since the plastic bag levy. From the 1st of February, when you buy a drink in a plastic bottle or can with the re-turn logo, you'll pay a deposit of between 15 and 25 cent at the till. Then, when you bring your empty, undamaged bottle or can back to any shop, you'll get your deposit returned. But will enough retailers sign up for the scheme? This morning, Claire Byrne spoke to the CEO of Re-Turn, Kieran Foley. Are you worried about that, that a lot of retailers aren't buying into this, the smaller ones in particular? No, I'm... Our numbers are probably ahead of where we expected and they're definitely ahead of any other European scheme at this stage. So we, we're going to have 1,850 uh, OVMs live on February the 1st and included in that is hundreds of smaller retailers who could have taken an exemption but have decided to take an OVM. So the reality That's is... That's the machine. The, the yeah, OVM. the reverse vending machine. Sorry, yeah. The reality is we've done our feasibility study. It's been independently verified We've got some of the the best handling fees on offer in Europe and we've got grants available. Do we know it's going to be enough? As I said, the initial take-up makes us feel positive about that. But we haven't even gone live yet. So, you know, we think the handling fees are right. We think the grants are about right. Once we go live, we'll keep everything under review. I'm Mm -hmm. constantly talking to the smaller retailers. We, We know them very well and we are listening. And at the end of the day, we're here to increase recycling. That's all we want to do. So if, if we need to do more post-go-live, then obviously we, we'd have a look at that. But but right now, we think we're probably where we need to be. You mentioned the exemption for the smaller retailers. So if they yeah. decide not to have the machine, they can still take the returns back over the counter. Is that is that? Yeah, well, the, the exemption really is about if they don't want to be a take-back operator at all. So as you know, 
every retailer will charge the deposit and every retailer will show the deposit separately on the on the till receipt but they don't have to be a take back operator if their sale space in the store is below 250 square meters now that's a relatively flexible and a relatively generous size of store so that allows people to opt out from being a take back operator if if they wish but if they wish to opt in there's grants available for people who take less than 250,000 containers back there's a 6000 euro grant available over three years to help the likes of the people you're talking to. On, the people who get the Friday. machine in. Yeah, if you get the machine in. But you can you can do a manual take back if you do if you let's say initially you don't want to outlay that cost or you want to wait and see how it goes. Um, then you can just do a, a manual take back. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in our take take up so far as I said over eighteen hundred and fifty RBMs, probably only about hundred and twenty manual take backs. But I think a lot of people are, are taking the exemption They'll wait and see how it goes. Vincent Jennings, who represents some of the retailers, is writing in the Irish Times today about the manual take back. And he Mm. describes very well what he thinks it will look like. I'm sure Mm. you read it. You know, syrup dripping from bottles, alcohol smell, a queue of people behind somebody who's bringing these things back over the counter. It doesn't really sound workable, does it? It doesn't, but that's that's not the the practicality of how it happens. So, as I, as I mentioned the last day we were here, we're not pioneering this deposit return scheme. It's live in over forty countries. It's live in fourteen countries in Europe. I don't think the manual take back is going to be as onerous as Vincent thinks. You know, I've seen this in action where people have the plastic bag in a in a in a bin in a drum, if you like, and literally as the public come in with their with their containers, they're checking if they're if they're undamaged and if they're empty. And they're looking to see if the logo is on there. And then they ask the public to pop it straight straight in, in the bin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, retailers are, are clever and good about how their operations run. Things will improve. As I keep saying, we're not looking at February the 1st as a big bang go launch. This is the start of a permanent change to how Ireland does its recycling. Yeah, I, so, I suppose the concern for the smaller retailers is if I don't get this machine in and I'm not prepared to do that manual take back, that I'm driving my customers to the larger stores and I'm going to miss out on business. That's that's absolutely it. And that's that's a, a really fair concern. And that's what, what we're listening to. Now, as I said, our experience is from around the world that a lot of people take the option of, of wait and see. And we do see a wave too. So we work very closely with the RVM suppliers and they say to us that you'll see a lot of the smaller retailers coming on board, forecourts, garages, these guys, because they see the positive impact that the scheme has. Hopefully everybody is getting involved in the recycling in terms of cleaning up Ireland, etc., and they see that it is is affordable, is, and and we see we see that happening across. The is world. there any scope for those grants to increase? I mean, you said you're looking at everything, but it's a yeah. six thousand euro grant against an eleven thousand euro machine. Now those machines go up to fifteen thousand, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. It depends. Obviously, you have a choice of what machine you you purchase, but the entry level is about eleven thousand. Yeah, but the the handling fee is a really important part of this of this project. That's what I mean about. We've done our feasibility study. We've set our level at 250,000 containers to get the, the grant for a reason. We, we've we set the handling fees. They're, they're amongst the best in Europe. So you get paid as a retailer for taking these things in? Absolutely. So, you know, if you do, without getting too technical or doing too much maths off the top of your head, but if you do 300,000 and you're getting 2.2 cents per container, that's 6,600 a year that you're getting back against your 11K or your 15K spend. Potentially... If you're below 250,000, you could be getting the grant the mm-hmm. grant as well. So people will see that it's, you know, there's, there's more benefits to this than okay. they maybe initially. Well, Kieran, let's move from the retailer's concerns to what the consumers and the customers have to do. Will you explain how it works? Yeah. So you've already explained in terms of 
you know, I will now be paying 15 cent or 25 cent depending on the size of the container when I buy a plastic bottle or a, or a um, aluminium can. Once I bring it back, it'll mostly be to the reverse vending machines that we talk about. I touched on it last time, but it's really important that we don't crush the cans anymore because these machines need to read the barcode. Once I put my bottle or my can in the machine, then I get a voucher for the store that I bring it back to. I can bring it back to any store that's participating, regardless of where I bought the, the product, but I have to use that voucher in that store or I can redeem that voucher for cash. Mm-hmm. That's how it works in simple terms. I have heard uh, of some teenagers collecting <laughs> bottles right now and yeah. storing them up. Yeah. There's no point in doing that because they don't have the logo on them. There's no point in doing that, but those same teenagers will be a fantastic asset to the scheme post-go-life. Yeah, so all the producers are very busy at the moment making sure that the logo is on the bottles and cans, making sure that the new barcodes are going on the bottles and cans, which is why today's bottles and cans are no good to those teenagers but what you'll see is that the transition period we spoke about the last day Claire so from the 1st of February you'll start to see the logo product um, in stores but producers have until the 15th of May sorry the 15th of March to put the products in and retailers have until the end of May to sell the old products through so So, it's really from the 1st of June that every product will be So when I go into the shop in February I have a choice between a bottle of water with no logo on it or a bottle of water with a logo on it But but Potentially it all depends on which store you're in and where they are in terms of taking the stock in from that producer so some of the producers are ready to go straight away some of the retailers are ready to go straight away so in some stores you'll start to see logo product Mm -hmm. but we've given everybody the option to run it down because obviously we don't want to waste to waste the stock so there'll be a mixture as we go through from from february through to the end of may kieran foley ceo of re hyphen turn talking to claire byrne this morning about the some might say controversial recycling scheme that's kicking off from first of february Following the announcement of the Oscar nominations this afternoon, Joe Duffy spoke to Irish writer-director John Carney and they started with Best Actor nominee Killian Murphy. I'd say Killian's sure to get it. And good Do you think so? Yeah. yeah, even I though... I've seen an actor from, from when I knew him. I, I, he was in my first, or his first movie. Okay. We did together. And he, if you, if, you know, I've never seen a man more determined and, and have, you know, have his career in his sight. In, wow. the, in the way that with Killian, you know, from very early on, uh, you know, incredible determination, yeah. and really smart about business and what gigs he'd take and, you know, just really, really nailed it. And he's a great actor. He deserves it. He's a brilliant actor. But even even his his uh, household name through Peaky Blinders, John. Uh, that it, was a great coup for him. Wasn't oh, it? That bro, was a, he was so brilliant. So, and well, that, yeah. and yeah. that was hard work. That was hard work. Yeah. That yeah, was. The hours in. Yeah. And the act was great and the vibe was great. No, he was terrific. He's a great, he's a brilliant actor. I mean, I, I saw it years out, but you'd be blind to miss it. Anybody who saw him, you know, when he was 22, when he was in Dublin, he'd done a short movie. Um, I mean, I had to kind of fight for him a little bit to get him in On the Edge years ago because it was sort of all about Colin Farrell back then and Killian was sort of un, okay. untested, you know. Yeah. And, and But you, know, you could tell when he walked into a room that he had, he had, uh, he had the killer instinct, you know. And Killian didn't do the celebs. Still doesn't, actually, as far as I know. Uh, he doesn't do the celebs. Sir, sir, sure he doesn't. He's quite reticent. He's uh, yeah. I think I think he's I think he's um yeah, he's a family man, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. And Yvonne, congratulations to him and Yvonne. 
great yeah. great community worker as you know John in Dublin long standing great exactly. great great work on the ground with people especially in West Dublin that's uh, Yvonne yeah. uh, Killian's Killian's partner uh, Paul yeah. Paul Giamatti in the holdovers everyone knows him from the, the, the wine movie what's the wine movie called Sideways. That's right. That's what I said. Yeah. You, you took, yeah. yeah. Um, but he's. I just wonder would he be Killian's biggest um, opposition? Oh, I don't think so. I don't. Okay. I don't think Killian has any competition for this one because you know Giamatti is a genius actor. I mean, he's kind of yeah. like a Philip Seymour Hoffman or somebody like that. But he is, you know, the, the role the Killian's doing the Oppenheimer thing is kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a big, big kind of studio movie. Uh, it just has big muscle behind it, and you know it's a performance. You know it's, it's okay. over time, and he does lots of makeup, and he's different periods of the, of his life, and all of that. So I think Oscar tends to sort of love that kind of performance, don't they? Even though Paul Giamatti is just like, you know, yeah. he's one of those. He's like a. I mean, he's just he'll go down in the history books for being one of the greatest actors of our generation. I would say. Okay. And the film's great. Holdovers is terrific. Um, the, it's, I've just been told, John, that the, the Florence one was not shortlisted. Is that no. this, okay. Oh, no, I, I really don't expect it to be, to be honest. To be, well, it's it, great it, to know, be. It's, well, it's brilliant to be long-listed. Well, it's got, good, you know, you do your thing and, and sometimes they pay attention and sometimes they don't. And as I say, you know, you've got to be yeah. out there on the ground canvassing, you know. Yeah, and then, well, you, I, I first came across it, um, well, I saw you filming down in near Greek Street Flats there one day, brilliant location yeah. in the Herbert, yeah. the Herbert Sims, uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, Dublin City Council flats down there. And then you did well, very well at Sundance. It's not correct. It was snapped up by Apple. And then I think, I think I watched it on the first day. It was on Apple and I was absolutely bowled over. I absolutely loved it from beginning to end. I loved the acting. Right. I loved the music. I loved the ending. I just loved the ending in that pub. I think it was Hughes's pub, if I'm right. Uh, probably that's wrong. But am I right? No, you are right. That's oh, exactly where We kind of filmed everywhere, you know, very realistically from that kind of area. So we didn't go into studios. We sort of, you yeah. know, did it in relocations. And, you know, the people around there were incredibly supportive of the movie and sort of helped us make it in the right way. And so, no, so thank, yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I'm, I'm delighted with the movie. Yeah. And I'm, you know, Eve, I think, was stellar in it. I think she was just she, great. Absolutely brilliant. And um, But doesn't it say a lot about me, John? I can't remember the name of one of the most successful movies of all time, Sideways. But I can identify the inside of a pub in Florence. There you go. There that's, that's, a true, that's a true job. Says it all. Says it all. Says it all. Really? <laughs> and you mentioned... Right, are, are you near the chemist yet? I'm walking around the chemist waiting for my dad's prescription. Brilliant. Looking after kids and my dad. Yeah, good time. lad, good lad, good lad. Normal, normal people, normal life. Normal people, normal, people, yeah. normal life. Um, <laughs> don't worry, we'll be back with another film next year. Oh, don't you worry. Well, great, we'll be... great. What's what's on the um, on the list? So I have a film that I'm doing myself and Peter McDonald, who's the actor. Uh, uh, love him, love him. Yeah, we wrote a film together. We've been working on it for years. Um, so we're hopefully getting that one off the road. I have a thing with Tom Hall, who we did Bachelors with, and my yeah. brother, Kieran. There's a few different projects. We'll see what the year has uh, in store for us. But we'll definitely, we'll definitely make something this year, we hope. Great. And John, John, when, when you... I know it's a long time ago now, and you've, you've done so many fantastic, especially movies since. Um, but Bachelors Walk... 
when when yeah. when people mention it, it's just so iconic at this stage. It's incredible. Yeah, great fun. It was brilliant. But I'm T- sure nobody cares about Bachelor's Walk now today with these bleeding Oscars. Yeah. For... <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay well, on topic, Joe. Well, go back, go back and watch Simon and go back and watch Don in uh, Bachelor's Walk. And uh, it's, it's, it's the whole ensemble cast that you got together for that is just absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, Keith and Don and Simon and Marcella. Marcella. And, uh, that, the, best, yeah. the best time of our life. We were young and no mm-hmm. kids, no, no, nothing to hold us back. And you know, like the keys to the the keys to uh, the the sports car for a few weeks, making that show every year. Yeah. It was amazing. It was just brilliant. Writer director John Carney and Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line, reminiscing about the TV show Bachelor's Walk on the day the Oscar nominations were announced. On this morning's Nine O'Clock Show, Shea Byrne spoke to former England footballer Michael Owen and his son James about the rare genetic eye condition known as Stargardt disease. Shea started with James and asked him to describe what the disease is. Stargardt is a eye condition which deteriorates over time and it um, affects the central vision of an eyesight, um, but the peripheral normally stays the same. So... Um, Obviously, I've been having it since I was born, so um, I don't know what to compare it to, but apparently it's um, more blurry, and I know I've got some blind spots, but it's I get asked that question all the time. I just don't really know how to answer it, that's all. Yeah, yeah, because you, you haven't even got a reference point for it. Um, I know with macular yeah, degeneration, exactly. for people, uh, maybe they would explain macular degeneration as having... Uh, peripheral vision that they can see out of the side so people you see people turning their heads a little bit to look to look at you at the side but but I understand and that's a that's a great point to make that you don't have a reference for it and look you're you're from a footballing family an equine family and a footballing family um so the pressure must come on you as well people asking that question since you were a little boy as well are you going to follow in dad's footsteps yeah I mean that was definitely my dream when I was a lot younger um and I still do get asked that question to this day and it's um, to a lot of people, it's they don't realise that I've got an eye condition, and to play mainstream football would be close to impossible. So um, yeah, it's normally a bit of a, like an awkward conversation with um, a lot of a lot of people asking. But yeah, there's normally quite a lot of pressure um, from outside of the family. But my dad's very um, supportive and he's like understanding, and he never would like force you into anything. The, the documentary is called Football for Everyone and it'll be shown uh, on TNT Sports, which is formerly BT Sports, uh, on Tuesday, January 30th. But the, the, I believe there are scenes of you playing uh, football there. It's a particular type of football for people who are sighted, partially sighted or have visual impairment. Um, yes, there is. It's um, called futsal. It's visually impaired fo- um, football in, in a way. It's um, for a lot of people. Some people believe that futsal is played of blindfolds on and with a bell and a ball but it's not actually the case the standard's very high and it's um it's just like five-side football really very fast paced and the um the quality of the players was actually really breathtaking because i never heard of it until the documentary approached so um i had no idea like the standards would be so good and i um i played for him yeah and um 
Hopefully this isn't a spoiler, but I scored in the documentary, so... <laughs> it's not a spoiler, man. If you've scored a goal in the match, no matter what match it is, you've got to say you scored it. So, no, I'm delighted to hear that you, that you scored. Um, well, can you tell us the differences then, say, when you played football when you were in school to playing that game? Just for people who maybe are visually impaired this morning, we have Vision Sports Ireland who do something similar here. Um, but could you just tell us how the game is played? Um, well, it's, it's five-a-side. The goalkeeper can be... Um, completely fully sighted, but it can't leave the D. Um, it's very fast pace, and um, the ball is it's a ball. It's slightly heavier, so it doesn't bounce as high. And um, shall I pass it on to my dad? Because I'm I honestly don't know that many other rules. <laughs> <laughs> so your dad doesn't know the rules either. But pass me on to him anyway. All right, brilliant. Hey. <laughs> Hey, all right. Hey, Michael. How are you? Yeah, we're just, talk, we're just, we're just <laughs> talking to to, uh, to James about the the actual game itself. Just for people, you might explain um, the rules are slightly different. The, the, so the goalkeeper could be visually uh, unimpaired, as such, he can be fully sighted, but he can't leave the D. And the ball's a bit heavier. Any other rules? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's it's normally played indoors, um, and the goals are probably the size of hockey goals, same similar shape and size. There are one or two. Unique rules. You can have fly goalkeepers. You know, if you if you're losing, um, then the, the the manager might want to put an outfield player on. So basically, you've got five outfield players and nobody in goal. You lose the ball and you're in trouble though because they just knock it into an empty net. So that's normally one of the uh, the, the last resort rules. Um, but no, there's four outfield players and um, and it's it's basically football at all intents and purposes. Yeah. Same rules in terms of of um, you know fouls and, and, and all the rest of it and yeah we've had a, an amazing time following the the, uh, the England team into the World Cup um, there was a home World Cup actually um, which features in the documentary and the skill levels were actually incredible as James said um, people would say or think partially sighted people um, playing a slightly different game of football but you know a, a Premier League player would would you know would or struggle, but they would be right at the, the the top of their concentration levels to compete with these guys. I mean, it's seriously high standard stuff. Speaking to you as a as a dad, Michael. Um, obviously, James um, decided to give up football, which was a difficult decision for him, and I'm sure for you to see him not playing the game that he loved. But it must have been quite emotional to see him play again. Yeah, in a way, um, in a way, it was. And obviously, James. Um, and like with a lot of kids, really, if if they if they can't do something um, well or they not enjoying it or, or whatever it might be, a lot of these things don't happen overnight. It was a gradual process. So when James was really young, I you know said to my dad, I said to my wife, this kid's got some real ability. He could be a footballer one day. Uh, he had a great touch and he was really well balanced and quick and beat people and he was just you know really showing promise but he was doing a lot of things in the game where I just couldn't understand why he'd be standing in a certain position and not shuffling over when a ball moved and, and just a lot of positional sort of deficiencies in his game and I kept saying to him like well, you know when the ball goes over to the right back why don't you do this and why don't you do that and and he was sort of oh, I'll, I'll, you know he, he was always desperate to, to learn and desperate to, to, to try and, and whatever but he just wasn't grasping it and uh, and over a little period of time that's when we found out that actually he was struggling to see the, 
the board at school, struggling to see an awful lot of other things, and that's when, obviously, we started doing some investigation type of stuff and, uh, and found out that he, he had Stargardt's. I just want to ask James. You got a pad. We only got one phone between you. Things are bad. <laughs> Would you pass the yeah, phone back to James? Yeah, I'll pass you back on. <laughs> Hello, James. Hello. <laughs> How are you? So, James, obviously, we were talking to your dad there about your footballing career, and obviously, I mentioned that the pressure that you'd be under with your dad being Michael Owen—that you, you know, you should be become a footballer. And we've seen that with other uh, families of footballers as well. Look, you, 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 your football is not for you, and you've you've, you've decided that. Um, you're 17 now. I know you're doing a course in business studies, or you've done a course in business studies. Um, like, what plans are you trying to make for the future? I know you're an ambassador, and you're you're very. You're, the reason you made this documentary is to bring awareness to your condition and to other vis- people with visual impairment. But what, what's your plan now? What or do you have a plan? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's a bit of a loose plan. I don't think I'm going to go further into education. I'm nearly done with college now. I'm finishing in March, so that'll be quite exciting. Um, I want to have my own business in the future. I want to be able to provide for my future wife and kids and give them a good life um, with with my own business. So that's that's the end goal. How I get there, I don't I don't really know, but. Yeah, but yeah, in, the, in the meantime, like you've got to go on holiday with your friends, and you've got to, you know, you've got to do all that stuff as well. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm planning on going on holiday with, with my girlfriend at some point. But did you yeah, did you it. enjoy? I, 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 I've got the feeling from you from the interviews that you did that you kind of enjoyed the, the process of making the documentary. Oh yeah, it was um, it was it was great. It's really taught me how to. Um, do a lot of things, definitely made me grow as a person. Because um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary yet, but it's um, I'm actually only 15 when it starts, because um, that was during COVID, so it's pushed a lot of the time back. So it's um, I definitely look and sound a lot different than I do now. And um, it's it's definitely built me as a person. And it's it, the whole experience has been great. I've met like a lot of new people, made a lot of friends. And um, yeah, enjoyed playing football. That's James Owen and his dad, Michael, talking about life with Stargardt disease and his new documentary, Football is for Everyone. January, without a hint of irony, is Liver Health Awareness Month. Claire Byrne was joined this morning by Niamh Lenehan and her dad, Dennis. Niamh had a liver transplant in 2020 and, amazingly, her dad was the donor. When did your problems first begin? So I was um, diagnosed when I was 11 years old with an illness called primary sclerosing cholangitis. And um, yeah, it was 16 when I got the transplant. Right, so um, you were 11 and then you had five years then of dealing with that. And what happened when you were 11? Like, how did you know that you weren't well? What was the first sign? So the main thing was um, tiredness. I just started getting very drowsy, very fatigued throughout the day and little bits here and there. So there was um, jaundice, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Just general kind of liver symptoms and went to the doctor and very quickly got a diagnosis. Right. And then did things start to get worse from that point on or was it a slow burn? Yeah. So it was kind of slow towards the start, but then towards the time when I had the transplant. So around 14, 15, it started to pick up the pace a bit. Mm -hmm. And then that was when transplants started getting mentioned in appointments. Right. That That was a scary time, Dennis, I'd say, was it? Um, 
Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it was scary, but uh, we were kind of braced for it. Because um, from because, the diagnosis point, yeah, you, you the, knew the, that the, it was... The lingo was kind of stepping up, you know, through the years. We kind of knew it was in, what it was in front of us. We didn't know the timeline, but we mm-hmm. knew at some stage it was coming down the tracks. So when did you come into the picture then, in terms of being a potential donor? Um, so we went... So as part of the, the, the liver programme, we went over to uh, King's Hospital in London in February 2020, I think it was. And it was it was when we were over there and Neil was put on the transplant list... Then this option came for a, a live donor, so you needed the, the the right blood type, which is a B positive, which what we, which I was, um, and then we just we took it from there. Mm-hmm. You know, the coordinators I, over there to help you through the process. What did you think about it when you first realised that you were potentially the one? Um, I was kind of quite happy. Were you delighted that I could actually help? Help, yeah, absolutely. You see, I'm a bit confused about this because I know I only have one liver. Yeah. So how do I give that one liver to somebody else? How does it work? So so the, the liver, there's, I, I think Sonia's probably better for answering this question, <laughs> but the, the liver is a, a complex organ, but we can give a part of it. We can cut some of it off, right. transplant it, and then my liver has grown back and, and then the, the new organ, the new graft in Neve grows into a full liver. Right. So the problem is, though, that you're an adult man and, you know, you have your daughter here who you were 16 at the time. So is there an issue there with the size of the liver? So um, the good thing about a liver transplant is that there's only two kind of parameters that you need and that's size and blood type. Mm -hmm. So um, I was quite small because I was sick um, for a good few years. So um, the size was perfect and then obviously the blood was a match. So, yeah. And off you went. Yeah. And you had to do a lot of work before the transplant happened, didn't you? Well, there was a bit of a, life t- a lifestyle change, I suppose, you know. Um, it was like, I suppose, training for a marathon, maybe. Um, there was a big, I had to be physically fit coming into a, to any transplant. So um, exercise, so, diet, yeah, no, ex- no pints. No pints, no pints. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how was all that? Was that tough? Um, no, it wasn't. As I say, it's, it's, I've never done a marathon, but I guess it's, I guess it's like training for a marathon. There's, a, there's an objective, there's a goal at the end of it. So that was the main focus. So really everything mm. else is secondary, you know. And they were um, keeping an eye on you through all this, were they? Um, no, no, that's just something that we did ourselves. We okay. just knew the assessment was coming up at some stage. We were in the middle of COVID at the time, it was 2020. But we knew at some stage that we, I would travel to King's to do an assessment, four-day assessment. So it's just, for me, it was just to be as, as as prepared as I possibly could. Were you keeping an eye on him saying, come on now, keep, keep, keep <laughs> oh, moving? No. Well, she, he's nodding beside you. <laughs> but it was important that he be as healthy as possible, I suppose, just to yeah. go through the operation. Of course, yeah, they want, they want you to be as healthy as possible because... They needed to work out. Obviously, they need to know that you're going to be perfect coming out of it. Yeah, that's that's it. They they look after the donor in that if there's not one percent not right, mm-hmm. they won't do it. So, what was it like then when you went to have the operation? You you went over as a family, did you? Yes. Yeah. So um, we got it done in King's Hospital in London, and we went over because it was through um, a live donor. We were able to pick the day that we went to okay. for the transplant. So we booked it in and then uh, went over a couple of days before, got tests done. And then the morning of, I think you went in before me and I was in a couple of hours afterwards. So you me. went in early in the morning. So, so the, 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 it's very uh, mechanical how it all works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we started at eight o'clock in the morning and they don't start to uh, do anything for me until they actually see the liver that's been donated. And at that stage, then they said, right, let's proceed. 
nerve-wracking. <laughs> Not for you, because you're under. I mean, you don't know what's going on. <laughs> but for you and your and your mum. My mum, definitely. I think she was probably the most nervous of anyone that day because we were in at the same time. So, yeah. <laughs> so did you get to see your dad before you went in for surgery? No, I think I... W- I think I saw you that night beforehand, but I don't think I saw you yeah. that morning, did I? No, you wouldn't have seen me that morning, no. Mm-hmm. It and was quite early in the morning. And when did you know then that it had worked out, worked out? I know it takes time, you know, to go through all that process, but in the immediate aftermath, did anyone say, we think this is going to be okay? Um, do you mean like as in after you wake up? Or? Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, once you wake up, the realisation hits you that, oh, this has happened because obviously mm. you're waiting for it for so many months. And then you wake up and you're like, this is great. <laughs> and and how, in terms of practicalities then, when did you get to go home, Dennis? And then So we had, the, the transplant was done on the 4th, it was a Friday the 4th, and I went home uh, on Friday the 18th, two weeks. Mm-hmm. So you so, two weeks. Yeah. But you said goodbye to Neve at that point, did you? Yes, yeah, yeah. And it. how long did you stay, Neve? Um, I was nine weeks over wow. in uh, King's Hospital. And then came back here and in hospital again here? Um, I think for around a month, but I was able to go home during that. So it was nice. And what was the recovery like? Um, The recovery, well, I say it it was going upwards from the moment the surgery happened. So it was only upwards. Um, It was a lot of physio, um, a lot of just minding myself. And in a year's time, I'd say I was more or less back to normal. And you're obviously doing great now. Yeah, it's night and day before and after really? transplant, honestly, yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of quality of living and everything. And how are you? Good. <laughs> really? No impact? No impact at all. No right. impact. Wow, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Neve Lenehan and her dad, Dennis, telling Claire Byrne the remarkable story of how dad donated part of his liver to daughter. weather's not great, is it? And how does the wind and the rain and the low temperature affect your skin? There to answer these questions on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show was the skin nerd herself, Jennifer Rock. Do you know what? It's so hard. Like I walked into studio today, it's seven degrees outside. Last week it's it's icy, it's cold. So the severity and the extremes of severity does have an impact on the skin. So ultimately what you're dealing with is dry heat in the home, dry heat example in the office or wherever you might be out and about. And it's the lack of humidity that has the impact on the skin. So uh-huh. the elements of the wind and the lack of humidity. So we're always looking for moisture in the skin. That's what allows it to be dewy, fresh, and really it helps the barrier of your skin. So if you think about what the skin is, the skin is a barrier. It's there to defend. So ultimately, it's not at its healthiest when the barrier is compromised. So you can't help the weather. We wish we could, right? We're, we're not able to. So ultimately, what can you do at home is take control into your own hands and just be careful of what skincare products you're applying. It doesn't mean you need to buy anything specific. It's just be wary of what you're using. So example, and nobody will like me for this, Ray, because I know at the end of a long day, you want a really hot shower, but the hot shower will actually dry the skin out further. So you can get in on a tepid temperature and raise it up to hot. It's again, like like most things in skin, if you do hot, cold or dry to warm it just it causes too much of a contrast so not so too much a of no a hot no. no no to the hot Try air and avoid contrast but and then when you're in the shower be careful of what you're using so anything that is what we call surfactant based so essentially it's a wash something that lathers too much so it can psychologically feel lovely on the skin because you feel really clean and squeaky once you get out those can often have ingredients in it that are just again stripping that natural layer of protection because don't forget your skin naturally has oils on the surface and it has what's called an NMS so a natural moisturising factor it's actually supposed to generate 
generate its own moisture. Think about children, think about babies. So why do they we spend billions have... every year on moisturiser then? Because life and li- sorry, lifestyle does dictate okay, it. So right. for example, when you are, like we're saying, out and about in the winter months, it does cause that lack of humidity, that lack of moisture in the skin. So be wary of hot showers, be wary of the shower gels, the products you're using. If you're feeling the need to put a moisturiser on, question the shower gel or the cleanser that you're using. A lot of our clients, for example, would say to me, I love a wash. I love that sensation of a wash, but actually encouraging you to look at cream-based cleansers can be far more advantageous. They really respect the skin. They don't take too much away from the skin, which then in turn le- means you don't have to use as many products thereafter because you're not kind of arguably stripping so your own skin first. So a cream-based cleanser. Yes, right. honestly, yeah. More so, and we tend to like the gels more so. Statistically, they're the ones that sell better, but cream is something I'm a huge advocate of. Because a few years ago, it was all that really rough stuff, that gritty stuff. The rough stuff, yeah. Thankfully, now the EU have they're banned gone, them. From, they? Yeah, from a sustainability perspective, was when we had those granules, and there still are some granules, but there is lots of microplastics uh-huh. that used to be in products that gave you that instantaneous you know, sensation of being squeaky clean. And I said this earlier to somebody, but I really believe that sometimes we exfoliate our skin thinking we're exfoliating an accessory, or I used to in the past, I publicly declare, used to exfoliate my skin like I was cleaning the kitchen sink. Like you would yeah. just go for it. But really going back to that word barrier, skin, hydration, locking it in is key. And there's a key ingredient that I don't want to say is trendy, but it's definitely quite current. It's an ingredient you naturally have in your skin. It's called ceramides. So ceramides are, they're a lipid, they're a fatty acid. They're found naturally within the skin and they are responsible for kind of keeping the moisture in your skin. And they are key to consider if you are getting a moisturiser or a serum or a spritz. Say the word again. Ceramides. Ceramides. So, yes, How so would you looking, know if a product has ceramides in it or so not? Usually on, the ba- usually on the front of the bottle, they'll advertise it. They'll, they'll want you right. to know. Okay. If you're looking at the back of the box, which is where I love to, to live. So the inky list, as you call it, that's the legal name for the ingredients. You're looking for things like ceramide one, two, three, right. or ceramide NP. So it does usually I'm have I'm just wondering if, if those granules are, are, are now banned. And, you know, because it, it, it seems to be trends. So it how do we know what is truly good for us? And our this, skin. Is, this is the age old question, isn't it? I do think where you get your sources of information from is key. So I, I love social media. I love to read a blog. But I suppose asking myself in any shape or form, be it lifestyle, diet, in, in this case, skin, am I getting my information from a credible source? That's that's question one. Are they qualified or is it opinion based? And is it based on aesthetics or perhaps more the health side? Mm-hmm. And then realistically, right, honestly, it goes back to the basics as it does with most things in life. So it's cleansing your skin, ideally, as we said, with either a ceramide based uh, cleanser a probiotic cleanser, ultimately a cream cleanser. Getting hydration into the skin is key as well. So hyaluronic is an ingredient you hear about a lot. That could be something to consider. Vitamin A, in my opinion, and a lot of derms, doctors, facialists, nurses will agree that vitamin A, which we often hear of as retinol, is a non-negotiable in skincare because it truly can... What do you get that from in your diet? In your diet, yes, a lot of liver. I'm right. not really a pat. I'm not really a liver patty fan. You can get it, obviously. You get your plant form, so beta carotene. So you get that a lot in your vegetables. And again, your question is so valid. Skincare is inside out. It's almost um, immoral or unethical to say that you you know this eye cream will be the youth of elixir that you've always waited for. But it is the inside out. Even back to winter skin, as we started, essential fatty acids in your diet are key. So getting your omegas into the skin, whether you're plant based or not, you know your nuts, mm-hmm. your seeds, your fish, your oils, they really do have an impact on the skin. They, for example, are like a an internal body moisturizer. Because when you think about it, you put on a cleanser, you're only treating an area. Whereas if you're put, you're eating your good fats, you're going to hydrate literally every single part of your skin, toes to top to toe, literally. Right, controversial question. <laughs> like, because you you would have started off as been described as an influencer, wouldn't you? Yeah, I so suppose my background is a facialist. So I've been a yes. facialist for twenty years now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And how do you feel about the current crop? The current crop. <laughs> uh, that's a very that is a controversial question. No, do you know what? 
I wouldn't have the phenomenal businesses that I do and the clients that I have without them. Yeah. But I feel that I hope it's starting to change. Although I say that and there was a viral TikTok at the weekend of a very well-known influencer that was advocating for sunbeds, for example. Right. And Not good, that, yes. That, yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. that breaks my heart. Because so what you said a, is brilliant advice. You know, you need to trust your source of information. I think so. Yeah. And, and if you're not and you're doing it for entertainment purposes, just know that. Know that that's what you're looking and listening at, but don't maybe pay as much heed unless it's from an educated source. Skin nerd Jennifer Rock talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about ways to protect our skin during the winter months. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, as you sit in traffic wondering about the choices you've made, that have brought you to this point in your life, you might consider the science of traffic. That's what physicist Shane Bergen did on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. Science is looking at this for us. What hope is there for us when it comes to this traffic problem? There is some, um, but uh, like many of the great juicy problems, science can only get us so far. Psychology has to get us the rest of the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And people at this time of year will be very familiar, particularly when schools go back or anyone that is in South Dublin will notice today that UCD is back in term. And so the roads are a lot busier because there's a lot more people moving around. And our solution has been um, an engineered solution, which is that we will build bigger roads and that will surely help with the problem. Remember when the M50... A wasn't there or B was only two lanes and there were traffic lights at every junction. And we thought when it went to three lanes and was free flowing that things would improve. But the problem is, is that when you build bigger roads, people are more likely to drive and they will get there. People also have more cars. So it's a space issue. And so science is looking at how these um, individual cars and vehicles are moving along the system and how they relate to one another with a view to trying to make things flow as much as Mm -hmm. possible. And I think we all have this image in our heads of driving as an expression of our individual autonomy and freedom, right? This great idea of the road trip, right? You can close your eyes and imagine you're in the Midwest of the United States and you're going down this beautiful road and there isn't anyone else. And, you know, you have the top down on your magic convertible and you're listening to the Eagles and everything is great. But the reality of driving is that everyone else is trying to go around as well. And our roads can only take so much. And once they get above a certain concentration of cars, you move from what we call a free-flowing state to a congested state. And that's where traffic comes about. And Mm -hmm. while we can model it, as a fluid, um, um, it only gets us so far. We can't yeah. really solve the problem. Because, I, I mean, when I say scientists and engineers are looking at what causes traffic jams, see, I, I think, well, I could answer that for them. It's, it's more cars on the road. And yeah. It's, you know, busier time, seven o'clock in the morning when the colleges <laughs> are back. That's what causes traffic jams. Are you saying there's a bit more to there it There is. So you know that if there's a breakdown, like the road's blocked, you can't get around it, the cars stop. But there are other phenomena. For example, if you're going along a multi-laned road and... And you come up um, behind a car that's moving much slower than the average traffic. What happens is you have to go around it. Now, if it's quiet, you can do that easily. If the road's busy, you have to kind of inch out into the overtaking lane and get around the car. And so you you end up uh, engaging in a behaviour where you come up behind the car, you possibly brake um, if the car is going very slow, like or maybe a tractor, you have to brake and then you have to get around it. And this causes a delay and it's, it, it causes a delay that moves backwards in traffic. We call it a shockwave. So 
the car right behind brakes, the one behind it brakes. And if the cars are too close together, they brake very rapidly. And all of a sudden, a couple of kilometres back, traffic stops. And that's what's called a phantom traffic jam. And uh, it, it happens because cars are not all moving at the same rate. It happens because there are too many cars on the road. And it happens primarily because of poor driver behaviour. And the primary one is people tend to drive too close to the car in front of them. And so when, when, they, when, the, when that, that car breaks, they have to brake very quickly. And so you get this abrupt uh, wave moving So backwards. we're not blaming the slow driver here. We're blaming everybody else, are we? Well, you know, it, it mightn't be a car for one one thing. It could be a vehicle that's moving on the road legally, right? And so they might just need to move slowly. So there is a, a, a unless you're on a motorway, uh, there is no lower speed limit, right? Or it might be a cyclist for, for that matter. The, the road is not ours to occupy. We have to share it with others. So whilst it might be frustrating to see that some cars are moving slowly, they're not necessarily doing anything wrong, although the behaviour of them and the cars coming behind can lead to these phantom mm-hmm. traffic jams. So is a potential solution to be found in deciding that every driver should behave in exactly the same way? Then would we have free, free flowing traffic? Yeah, and I had a great conversation at home this morning about this. It's like about the, the autonomous driving, right? What if your car was using AI in some way? What if we were able to kind of notice where the car was in front and the car was behind? and it was able to regulate so that it never got so close to either of them and it maintained a proper flow. Well, that's what it's going to do, isn't it? Well, it might, but it's very tricky because what happens if there is an accident? Who's at fault? What happens if the car has to make a decision as to, you know, I I, I have to stop. There's an emergency, but um, I'm not able to stop safely. Who do I hit? Right. So there's a famous philosophical problem called the trolley problem um, where the, uh, the, the person has to decide whether they there's this train and it's running out of control and they have to decide whether they pull a lever and it, it will kill a small number of people or you let it keep going and it, it may kill a large number of people. And so this idea of having to make a decision about something. So if, if you're driving your car, um, you have responsibility for it. But what happens if that responsibility is shared between you and an artificial intelligence? Who's at fault? Um, but you know what you said at the very start the real number the real reason we have traffic is there are too many cars the, the proper solution to these things is to not to be the in cars cars on the road yeah, so absolutely let's uh, uh, look drivers need to be on the road as things stand we're moving towards getting more people to travel actively but what do drivers need to do now to minimize traffic jams and make a make for a calmer journey <laughs> well there's a couple of things that they can choose to do and then there's things that traffic management systems can do so one thing that the driver can do is is Try not to get too panicked, right? The the idea of going up behind people or, or going uh, like tailgating them or weaving in and out of traffic doesn't help, right? It really doesn't. People might be surprised to hear that sometimes everyone slowing down gets everyone there faster. So if you're on the M50 at rush hour at the moment, you'll see that there are lower speed limits that flash up, right? So it yes. goes from 100 down to 80 or 60. So they're trying to control the flow of traffic. So you just basically mind your distance between the car in front and and just be a little bit more considerate. Another thing is when you're coming in and out of traffic is to bear in mind the effect that has on all the people behind you. So if you're coming off the M50 and you're pulling into like an exit, do you do that as soon as the exit appears or do you do you wait a little bit? And what, what the science shows is that 
you shouldn't just abruptly end, uh, come off the motorway and abruptly come onto the motorway. You should build up speed. You should adjust your speed so you come in or out of the motorway safely and you cause as little disruption to the car behind you as possible. There's one really basic thing, and I know we all do it, which is stop looking at your phone. Um, it's or, or being distracted. Also illegal. It is illegal. Absolutely. Um, you'd swear it wasn't, but uh, like, and the effect of it is not just that it is dangerous, right? But it's also that it has an effect on traffic. So if you are sitting at a light and it, uh, at the start and it goes green, you move off. Then the car behind you notices you've moved and then they move and there's a wave backwards. Mm-hmm. So not all the cars move off at once together. So that wave backwards of basically copping on that I can move is dependent on your reaction speed. And if you're not looking at the car in front of you or looking at the light, you have to wait uh, until you do realise or somebody behind you beeps. So then you were causing this knock-on effect. Yeah, so I, I, I've, I've been looking in the literature and there is some the research literature, there's some uh, uh, work that shows it is a significant contributor to traffic uh, in the morning is people being distracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put the phone down. Physicist Shane Bergen talking the science of traffic with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.